Well, the title of our talk uh, this Resurrection Sunday morning is A Living Hope. And um, if you'll bow with me, I'll just commit our time to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for bringing us to this special morning together. Uh, We pray that you would open our hearts as well as our minds to understand the significance of the resurrection in a deeper way. And uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the spring of 2007, Mark was enjoying a well-earned holiday in New Zealand when he started to experience pain in the area of his gallbladder. After the holiday, he was told he needed to have his gallbladder removed. When the surgeon opened him up, he discovered that cancer had invaded his liver. He was beyond surgery and radiotherapy. There was no effective chemotherapy for gallbladder cancer And so the surgeon very gently explained to Mark that he had six to nine months to live and he was just 62. But Mark was also a Christian and his response left the surgeon completely stunned. Mark explained that for a Christian this wasn't actually the end of the story. It was just the beginning. And Mark said afterwards that at that moment he saw an imaginary speech bubble appear above the surgeon's head, saying, This man is mad. He's in total denial. Well, Mark Ashton went on to write an account of what it was like to face death as a Christian. It's a very moving book, entitled On My Way to Heaven. And it's impossible, I think, to read it without being reminded that Christians have a unique hope, a living hope, that the rest of the world knows nothing about. Now that's what we're going to be thinking about uh, for a few minutes together this morning. And to get us started, I would ask you please to turn with me to the uh, letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament. And uh, I want to draw your attention to just one verse. It's 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 3. And in that verse, Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that's our big idea this morning. A Christian is someone to whom God has given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now please notice what Peter says. One of the consequences of the new birth, says Peter, is that we have a living hope about the future. So born-again Christians are full of confidence about the future and the reason we look forward to the future with such confidence is that we look back with confidence to the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. It is that past event that we celebrate on Easter morning that gives us our confidence for the future. Because there's no living hope for the future without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So will you think with me this morning about the Christian hope? Will you ask yourself whether you share it? Have you got any hope for the future? I sincerely hope you have, but maybe you've never really thought about it before. So what I want to share with you for just a few minutes is that the living hope to which all true Christians have been born again has two dimensions. It has a personal dimension and it also has a universal dimension. The personal dimension is that we are going to receive new or resurrected bodies ourselves. The universal dimension is that there's going to be a renewed universe. And when we put these things together, it means we're going to have new bodies in a new world. Now that is the Christian hope, and it's all founded on the resurrection of Jesus. So let's begin first with the resurrection of the body. Now two days ago, on Good Friday, we celebrated the Lord's Supper together. And as part of our preparation, we said the Apostles' Creed. I don't know whether you were dozing when you said it, or whether you meant it and were saying it intelligently. But if you meant it, you actually said that you believe in two resurrections. First, you said you believe in Jesus Christ, who suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, but on the third day he rose again. And then you said you believe in the resurrection of the body, that is, our own bodily resurrection. And the first resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, is the basis for our belief in the second resurrection we spoke of, the resurrection of our bodies. And Christians believe that we are going to rise because he rose. Now please notice that neither of those resurrections is a resuscitation. And it is exceedingly important to be able to distinguish between a resuscitation and a resurrection. They are not the same thing. A resuscitation is a return or a restoration to this life. But a resurrection is the beginning of an altogether new life. Those who are resuscitated will have to die again. Those who are resurrected won't because they've become immortal. There are three resuscitations mentioned in the Gospels. There was Jairus' daughter, there was the son of the widow of Nain, and there was Lazarus. Sometimes they're referred to as resurrections, but actually they were resuscitations. Because these two men and one girl were brought back from death to this life. And I think we should have a certain sympathy for them because they had to do their dying all over again. But not Jesus. If there were three resuscitations in the Gospels, there is only one resurrection that has so far taken place, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. 
And in Romans 6, Paul says, Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Over the centuries, many people from the Sadducees onwards have ridiculed the Christian teaching about the resurrection and they still do today. But friends, they're ridiculing something they simply don't understand. They think that we believe our present bodies are going one day to be miraculously reconstituted out of the physical properties from which they're currently made. And because they think we're rather simple and we believe this, they go on to ridicule it. So they go on to ask with a sneer, what's going to become of our bodies if they've been cremated? Or if we've been eaten by a great white shark? Or if they've been blown to smithereens in a terrorist attack? Or vaporised by a nuclear holocaust? How, they say with a snigger, can you Christians continue to believe in the resurrection if your body is going to disintegrate in any of those ways? Actually, the laughter is on our side. And we say to them the words that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, You fool! Because that's what these people are. Now there might be some uninformed Christians who believe in the reconstitution of their body. But that is a resuscitation. That is not the resurrection from the dead. Resurrection is not resuscitation. God might use in our resurrection whatever remains of our physical bodies, um, perhaps in terms of dust or bones. Clearly, God did that with the body of Jesus. Because when Jesus rose, his physical remains were no longer there. And that means, of course, that there is and will be some continuity between our resurrection body and our present body. But in the New Testament, the emphasis is not on the sameness of our resurrection bodies, but on the newness of our resurrection bodies. And I want to ask you to think about this with me for just a moment. Firstly, think about the resurrection body of Jesus. The evidence is that after he rose, Jesus had a very similar body. It could materialise, it could eat, it could be recognised by the scars and by the voice, and it could be touched. On the other hand, the New Testament evidence is that in some ways it was a very different body. It could pass through the grave clothes and leave them undisturbed. It could enter a room through closed doors. It could appear and then vanish. And finally, defying the law of gravity, it could visibly ascend to heaven while the disciples were watching. Now here's the thing. The New Testament says that the resurrection of Jesus is the pattern for our own resurrection. His resurrection body is the pattern of what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. 
So Paul says in Philippians 3 and verse 21 that Jesus is going to transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, we're going to, let, we're going to get a body like Christ's body. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15:49, Paul says the same thing slightly differently and he writes these words. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, that is Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven, that is of course Jesus. Now in order to understand what that means for us, uh, can I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, we'll spend most of the rest of our time there this morning. Because this is the longest and most detailed chapter on the resurrection in the New Testament and that makes it the, the, the right text to focus our thinking. I'm going to read from verse 35. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 35. Paul says, But someone may ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, literally, you fool! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Now pause on that. Because every gardener knows what Paul means. They know that there is a certain continuity between the seed and the plant. Because wheat grows from wheat seed, oats from oat seeds, barley from barley seeds. And Jesus himself said, uh, you don't pick grapes from a thorn bush and you don't pick figs, uh, figs from thistles. So there is some continuity between the seed and the plant. But if there is continuity between the seed and the plant, the discontinuity, the difference between the seed and the plant, is even more obvious. What you sow in the ground is a tiny, ugly, bare seed. But what springs from it just a few weeks later? Well, it might be elegant in shape, beautiful in colour, and fragrant in smell. Now, when you planted that little ugly seed, you never dreamed what was going to emerge from it. If you didn't know it, you would never imagine for one moment that an oak tree would grow from an acorn, because it's so different. And so here Paul says that although there will be important similarities, the resurrection body will be as different from this body as the plant is different from the seed that you sow in the garden. And then Paul gives us a very helpful illustration uh, in verses 42 to 44. Let me read it for us. Verse 42 so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. 
the body that is sown perishable it is raised imperishable it is sown in dishonour it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body now friends this is so important we need to look at these contrasts for just a moment in verse 42 Paul says this body is perishable well of course it is its life is limited to a few decades and during that time it gets sick it suffers accident it becomes frail and of course what follows is a steady decline towards death and decomposition because this body is perishable but the resurrection body is imperishable it won't suffer disease or decay or death or decomposition that is the first contrast Paul gives us secondly Paul says this body is sown in dishonour now that doesn't mean that our bodies are dishonourable in themselves the only dishonour of our body is that it is the container of our fallen human nature and as a result there are many sins we commit which involve our bodies in some way sins like anger or greed or sloth or lust these sins all to some degree have a physical component because in anger we might shake our fist or snarl in greed we overeat in laziness or sloth we don't take enough exercise and our bodies and our minds become flabby and so on but this body is going to be raised in glory the dishonour will be past the new body will have no fallen nature and no dishonourable passions and desires and then thirdly Paul says in verse 43 this body is sown in weakness in other words written all over your body and mine are the words fragile handle with care and though the human body is remarkably adaptable it can't endure extremes of heat and cold it can't survive without oxygen or food or water or rest and it can very easily be damaged it is sown in weakness but the resurrection body is going to be raised in power its biology will be completely different it's not going to be dependent on food and water it's not going to be subject to the same limitations of time and space no the resurrection body is going to have new energy new vigour it's going to have remarkable powers and of course we get a preview of some of those astonishing powers in the resurrection body of Jesus and then fourthly Paul says it is a natural body 
In other words, our body is an expression of our natural, physical, animal life. But our new body is going to be a spiritual body. Although it will be able to materialise, it's going to be a perfect vehicle for our spirit and it will perfectly express our glorified personality. So all of that has to do with the resurrection of the body. Now aren't you looking forward to it? I know I am. The older I get, the more I look forward to it. Whenever I feel the limitations of my physical life through pain or injury or sickness or tiredness, I think to myself, hang on in there Simon, this is not the end of the story. You're going to get resurrected and so are you. Perhaps you have a, a physical weakness or a predisposition to depression or a weak immune system and sometimes you felt you could have done so much more in this life without that problem but you're going to be resurrected in this new and imperishable and glorified and powerful body it's going to be amazing so that is the first part of the Christian hope and let me try and get it clear in our minds by saying it negatively because the first part of the Christian hope is not the immortality of the soul. It is not some kind of ghostly, shadowy, disembodied existence. Who wants that? Yes, it's true that the, the moment we die we will be consciously in the presence of Jesus because as our Lord said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that's a wonderful promise, but it's not the end of the story. That is only first base. So the Christian hope is not the immortality of the soul. It is the resurrection of the body, the, per the perfect vehicle for our perfected personality. And because Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, we are going to rise like him. So that is the first part of the Christian hope. More briefly, the second part is the renewal of the universe. Now, the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to this. Uh, we saw that in our Bible reading from Isaiah 65, didn't we, where God says... Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus himself spoke of what he called the renewal of the universe. Now you can look up the reference later, it's Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. But the Greek word that Jesus uses there literally means new birth. And that's very significant. Because Jesus is saying that it's not only we who are born again, the whole universe is going to be born again. The Apostle Peter spoke about it in his second sermon in Acts chapter 3, where he spoke of the day when God will restore 
all things Acts 3 verse 21 and in his second letter Peter said that the present heavens and earth will be destroyed by fire but they will be replaced by a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness but perhaps most famously of all John the Apostle says that he actually saw it because in Revelation 21 he writes these tremendous words then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea the sea of course being a symbol of separation and hostility and opposition to God and his plans so we have to ask John what did you see and John continues I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and then he says something absolutely fascinating in the same chapter because a bit later in the chapter we read that the kings of the earth will bring their splendour into the holy city and in Revelation 21 and verse 26 we're told that the glory and honour of the nations will be brought into the city now I've often wondered about that what on earth does it mean? well as I was preparing I discovered something that was completely new to me because one of the best New Testament scholars says that this is a way of highlighting that not all human, human culture is going to be destroyed only some of it the part of it which is evil now think about this with me because as you know culture is man-made nature is what God gives culture is what we make of it but culture being man-made can be either good or evil because it reflects the two aspects of our humanity part of it is evil because we are fallen but part of it is good because we've all been created in the image of God and everything that is evil in human culture is going to be destroyed but that which is good and beautiful and true in the eyes of God reflecting our own creativity as those made in his image that will be preserved now that is what John means when he says that the kings of the earth are going to bring their glory into the city and the nations are going to bring their glory into it and that glory is going to enrich the city in the new earth but not only will the best of human culture be preserved but the whole of nature is going to be renewed you don't need to turn to this but Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 8 because in that chapter Paul talks about the frustration of nature and he goes on to say that the two ingredients of the frustration in nature are its bondage to decay and secondly its experience of pain 
Pain and decay are the two aspects of the frustration of nature. But Paul goes on to say that the pains of the old creation are in fact the birth pains of the new creation. So the decay that we see in nature today and the damage that we're doing to the environment in our reckless and uncontrolled use of the earth's resources that's going to be replaced by glory. In fact, Paul says that creation is eagerly awaiting the day when the children of God will be revealed. Because, friends, when our redemption is completed by the resurrection of our bodies, the entire universe is going to be resurrected as well. And the whole creation will share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. Well, let me conclude. I hope you can see that the living hope of the New Testament is impressively material. It is physical. It's a material, physical expectation both for the individual and for the universe. For the individual, our hope is not for survival or disembodied immortality. It is the resurrection of the body. And for the universe, our hope is not just heaven or floating around on clouds. It is a new heaven and a new earth. It's very material. And for these two hopes, the resurrection of the body and the renewal of the universe, Jesus has provided the foundation. How has he done that? Well, first of all, in his miracles. Because in his miracles, Jesus displayed his power over the body, delivering it from disease and death. And he also displayed his power over nature, walking on water, stilling the storm, multiplying the loaves and the fishes. So these are evidences of his power over the body and over nature. But second, the supreme evidence is his own resurrection on the third day, in which the natural process of decomposition and corruption was arrested and overruled, and when the buried body became the resurrection body. And that was the beginning of the new creation. It provided us with visible public evidence of God's intention to renew the universe, to give us new bodies and transfer us into a new world. Now, what does this mean for you and me on this Easter morning? Well, friends, can I say that human beings cannot live without hope? Pessimism is a terrible and destructive thing. We seem to have been made by our Creator in such a way that we dream dreams of a better world. Don't you do, don't you do that? I know that I do. We all do. We all dream dreams of a better future, of what could be, of what can be, of what will be. Next month the people of this country vote in the elections. 
and multitudes will go to the polls with their hopes for a brighter future for South Africa. Now that is a good and right thing. And to a greater or lesser extent, we might share some of those hopes. But merely human hopes can't satisfy because they're limited to this life. Even the most noble dreams of the voters can never satisfy your soul because those hopes are confined to this world. But the living hope of the Christian gospel looks beyond this life. It's a hope of glory. Glory for the body, glory for the universe. So that when Jesus Christ comes again in overwhelming magnificence, he's going to raise the dead and renew the universe. Now that is what Mark Ashton was hoping for when the doctor told him he was going to die. He had a living hope that enabled him to face death without fear. And that's the living hope into which you and I have been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise God for the hope of glory. Well, let's be quiet for a moment. Friends, let's take hold of this truth in our hearts and not just in our minds because within us and around us are decay, disease, infirmity, weakness. Everything is perishable. Our bodies are perishable. The universe is perishable. But one day when Jesus comes, he's going to resurrect our bodies and regenerate the universe. Let's praise him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the hope of glory, the confidence of a glorified body and a glorified universe. Confirm this faith in us this morning. Help us to live as those who believe in the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth. Send us on our way rejoicing in hope for the glory of your great and holy name we pray. Amen.